Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. David Unwin. David is an award-winning NHS GP and is known for implementing the low-carbohydrate diet in clinical practice and putting type 2 diabetes into remission. So, without further ado, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Here I am. Yep, I'm delighted to speak to you. I actually had the pleasure of um, hearing you speak at a conference recently um, and you were very, very inspiring. So I am delighted to have you on the show today. Well, let's hope we can make it interesting for the listeners. <laughs> I don't think that will be a problem somehow. So I will link to your bio in the show notes. So if people that are interested about your background, they can access that. But to start, it might be good to understand that as a GP in the NHS, why you took a particular interest or specific interest in type 2 diabetes and specifically diet and type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Well, I'm now an old GP, so I'm 63 years old. And I became, when I was young and I had hair, <laughs> I became a doctor hoping to make a difference. And I think most of us become healthcare professionals hoping to make a difference. And I'm sorry to tell you that I got to 55 years old and I'd done my best. Uh, I was popular, I think, with the patients. Mm -hmm. I was deeply disappointed with how I'd spent my life or the achievements. And this was because I hardly ever saw people get well. It seemed to me uh, that the population I was caring for was deteriorating in health. And I'll give you a couple of figures. So in 1986, when I started as a very young partner, we had 57 people with type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And by 2012, that had risen to about 470. Wow. So that population, the population I was caring for, had been absolutely hit uh, with an epidemic. We'll call it an epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And really, it was just so depressing uh, because there were clinics full of sick people getting sicker. And I began to realize that um, the drugs I was using were palliative on the whole. Now, of course, I believe in antibiotics for pneumonia. And, uh, you know, there are if very effective and important medications. Mm -hmm. But in terms of chronic disease, I found the results really depressing. And the patients, you know, they, they were depressed as well. So it, it was a perfect storm of misery um, in terms of how the patients looked and the outcomes that we were managing in the, in the practice. So I kept prescribing more and more drugs for, for essential hypertension, for ischemic heart disease for uh, diabetes and uh, but I began to think about those with diabetes and then there was a group that really worried me and they were the younger ones particularly those with with pre-diabetes when you say younger how old are we talking about here 
Um, well, that's a, a, an interesting point also. So that back, if we go, just go back to 1986, we didn't have any younger ones. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody with type 2 diabetes, uh, at that point we didn't think about pre-diabetes, was over 60. So there were none. But then I noticed over the years that people were starting younger and younger with type 2 diabetes. The youngest I've personally looked after is 10 years old. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so, but the pre-diabetics, um, well, they'd often be in their 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. And what was particularly uh, disappointing, really, was the practice. We weren't doing anything for those pre-diabetics at all, nothing. We just told them they were pre-diabetic and then seemed to wait until they became sick. And um, so I, I made a slight fuss about this, but I was told that there was we weren't there was no finance to do anything for them. Right. So we were adding misery to the misery. So I, I even had an idea about these pre-diabetics, and I was senior partner, but the yeah the rest of the partners said we weren't paid to do anything, and so I should leave it and concentrate on sick people. So that's the. That's the back, miserable, miserable backdrop. And in fact, it was so bad. Um, I was planning to leave general practice altogether. And in fact, I think many GPs now, uh, so I'm 63, I'm, I'm by far the oldest working GP I know now. So when I was 55, to leave around then was um, quite average, really. So that's the, that's the miserable backdrop. And oh, middle-aged GP, uh, ineffective and uh, slightly depressed but at least there was an interest in uh, the true causes of illness that's mm -hmm. what I began to think about really I was thinking so why these people I care for so there's 9,500 people how is it over 25 years that we have an eightfold increase in type 2 diabetes you know, there were lots of talk at the time of genetics. Well, it can't be genetic, can it? Obesity and type 2 diabetes, because genes don't change in 25 years. That's only one generation. Yeah. So unless we were fruit flies, uh, you wouldn't be able to change genetics in that time. So at least I was beginning to ask questions about what I was noticing. So there was this um, epidemic of diabetes, not just an epidemic, but people were getting younger, mm -hmm. far younger. And then obesity, you know, obesity has changed altogether. So when I was at school, there was one fat child in the school, only one. Mm -hmm. Now in a school, I think in primary school, it's about a third of all the kids in primary school, or certainly when they leave primary school, I saw it on the BBC, are obese now. So things have really changed. It is, isn't it? And it's, it's, we need to be curious. A, re mm -hmm. a recurring theme for me is curiosity and asking why. Why has this happened? First of all, notice it and then ask why. So I was noticing all these things. Then on top of that, so the people in the waiting room were younger than they used to be. They mm -hmm. were fatter. The number of people with walking sticks unbelievable the one struggling with inflammation i was looking recently there are now 
three shops selling um, mobility scooters in Southport, where I'm a GP. Where are all these hundreds of people coming from that need, I call them, mobesity scooters? What's going on? Uh, so that was the background. I was depressed with what I'd achieved. I, I just, in my bones, I didn't really think that all the drugs I was giving for diabetes and high blood pressure was doing good, but I hadn't really got it worked out. So there we are, middle-aged, disappointed GP. <laughs> well, just to unpick that, I mean, you mentioned genetics and I completely agree with you. They don't change over time, but there are certain genes which can, uh, I guess, predispose people to putting Absolutely. on weight, right? Well, of, but yes. those haven't changed and yet we're oh, still seeing this yeah. like massive we're rise. Yeah, we're seeing, I agree the genes are there, but it's a cop-out to say it's genetic. Yes. Does that mean I shouldn't bother, uh, you know, and it's hopeless? It's a, what's happening is those genes are expressing themselves now because of a changed environment. Mm -hmm. And who could say that the environment, the food environment particularly, hasn't changed? Just go to any garage you like and look around. Look for some real food on the shelves as you're paying for your petrol. And you will see there's just nearly nothing in that shop that won't give you diabetes, in my opinion, and certainly contribute to a sort of snacking obesity type culture. So, yes, I, I agree. Um, genetics are a predisposition. I think epigenetics are even more interesting. We Let's not get too distracted, but those are really interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know, the environment, a mother's uh, dietetic environment actually will affect that child and how likely it is to be obese so epigenetics yeah. but really let's concentrate i think you know as a gp i'm essentially a pragmatist a practical person i want to make a difference so i can't really make a difference to your genes ben um but I can really influence you to eat differently and maybe that would make a difference. Absolutely. And just for the listeners, I just want to clarify something. If you imagine your genes and your DNA are a blueprint, epigenetics are how your environment changes, how your body reads that blueprint. blueprint. Um, so you can express these genes differently. Um, and it might be good to for listeners which might know what type 2 diabetes is, but they might be diagnosed with it, they might not actually know like what causes it to begin with. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. <laughs> oh, I've got thoughts on that. Yes. <laughs> and I think it's really useful to differentiate between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes as well. So, uh, and this is more or less the same chat I have with my patients because uh, I've become passionate really about explaining illnesses to my patients in a way they can understand and so that then they're in a stronger position to judge the advice I'm going to give them. Um, so I explain to people you have the hormone insulin. Insulin produced by the pancreas gland has a vital job to do in keeping you alive and that job is regulating blood sugar so that if I eat a Mars bar uh, insulin sees to it that my blood sugar doesn't rise too high. 
because a high blood sugar over time is really dangerous. And in fact, we know that a high blood sugar within hours damages the lining of your arteries, both large and small. It's called the glycocalyx and it's damaged very rapidly. And so if you don't, if you're not able to uh, regulate your blood sugar over time, one of the most predictable things is cardiovascular disease. And in fact, uh, this also helps explain the problems that people with diabetes have with retina and also the kidney because they get problems with the circulation, the, the microcirculation and the macrocirculation, small and large blood vessels. So insulin's got this special job to do, get rid of sugar, to get blood sugar down. Um, questions are always more powerful than statements. So I'd like everybody to think, where does insulin put that sugar? That's the question. Where does insulin put sugar? Well, we know what it does. It, it can be seen as pushing sugar into your muscles for energy. So that would be a good thing if I run around a lot. But what about if I eat more Mars bars than I need for energy? What happens to the rest of that sugar? Well, insulin's busy again, and it's pushing that sugar into your belly fat, particularly. And this explains the modern phenomenon of middle age spread. All these people, including me, uh, that we're getting a bigger belly. And we know uh, central obesity has an impact on at least eight different cancers. So central obesity is really important. Now, the next place that insulin is pushing sugar is the liver. Just to clarify now, that point before, yes. when you said central obesity, do you mean visceral fat around the organs or more so like just where the fat is stored subcutaneously, so under the skin? Well, I'm really looking at people's waist measurements, mm -hmm. I would say, because that's, I, I, you know, I'm not scanning people. I, again, I've, I'm looking at your waist, particularly interested in the waist to height ratio is a great way to uh, look for central obesity. But yes, good interruption. <laughs> Let's get back to the liver. So um, the, the liver can store a little bit of glucose as glycogen, but not much. Uh, and when the glycogen stores are full in the liver, insulin is still forced to push that sugar into the hepatocytes, the liver cells, and they are forced to turn it into a fat. And that fat is called triglyceride. And we have a situation now where a quarter of the whole of the developed world have fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver, liver disease. And fatty liver disease is really very interesting it interferes with the work of insulin so that you become insulin resistant. And if your insulin isn't working as well, mm -hmm. you're struggling to um, keep your blood sugar well controlled and you're starting to become diabetic. That's type 2 diabetes. Roy Taylor, my friend from Newcastle University, talks about the long silent scream from the liver of about 10 years. That's a predictable long silent scream from the liver before you actually develop type 2 diabetes. Some of those, of course, are pre-diabetes. So that's the backdrop for type 2 diabetes. Type 1 is also a problem with insulin. You just don't, you're not able to produce any insulin. 
And so you can't live without insulin and those people need insulin to live. There's a slight, people become a bit confused between the two because actually, if you keep on eating those Mars bars, it's not just your liver that fills with fat, it's the pancreas. Mm -hmm. And eventually the fat in the pancreas starts interfering with the beta cell function, the very cells that produce insulin. So later on for people with type two diabetes, they can struggle to produce enough insulin. So that's the chat that I have with my patients, trying to help them understand that blood sugar control is really important and where your sugar comes from in your diet is really important. So through this lens, you've kind of come to the conclusion that a low carbohydrate diet is suitable or best, um, I guess, the most appropriate for this population. Um, I have a few questions and I'm, I'm wondering if you, you you're up for a healthy discussion about this because oh great yes <laughs> definitely definitely if you know something that works better than low carb I'll do it no 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 <laughs> it, it, it wasn't necessarily that because my listeners will know that I'm a fan of the low carbohydrate diet yeah, it's worked yeah. very well for me in terms of um maintaining relatively low levels of body fat and muscle mass etc but I'm interested because there is an almost division within the scientific literature of physicians who believe that fat potentially derives type 2 diabetes by increasing insulin resistance through, and this might get slightly technical, just for everyone who's listening, um, a process called intracellular lipid. Um, and the idea that if you reduce fat to a certain level, you'll actually be able to metabolize, it, metabolize those carbohydrates more efficiently. Now, I think... The, there's a vast, well, in my opinion, the evidence supports more strongly the low carbohydrate paradigm, reducing insulin through less carbohydrates, increasing fat as a kind of a source for fuel. Um, but I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you just said is the advice I gave for 25 years <laughs> that, you know, I tried genuinely. I'd never heard of the low carbohydrate diet, but certainly it was the usual paradigm to go low fat. So I nagged and nagged and nagged about eggs and cheese and cream. And I did that for years and years. And then, you know, we have continuity of care in practice. And the point was I hardly ever saw it work. That was my problem. Mm -hmm. I was talking about fats in the diet. And what was the first thing that I noticed that was weird was people would come in and they'd say, right, doctor, I mean, I've given up eggs, I've given up butter, I've given up cheese. Now then, tell me, how much better is my fasting lipid profile? And you know what? It was hardly better at all. It was embarrassing right. because the actual improvements that I was witnessing year after year were really disappointing. And these people, I didn't know what to say to them because we'd only improved the cholesterol a little Mm -hmm. A little bit, perhaps. Um, so, uh, again. And what the about fasting point, insulin and things like that? Well, you can't measure that in general practice. Oh, I'm not allowed. Yeah. I've tried and tried, but they won't let me. And then the other thing was um, the low-fat diets were so punishing. Uh, so people would do it for me, but they couldn't stick to it. So they would lose weight. Um, they'd lose weight for a wedding or whatever, but then they bounce back. So it, my problem in clinical practice, it didn't work. 
in the medium term. That's my problem. And I wish to be effective. And then on top of that, after I've just explained to you about how insulin regulates um, central obesity and also the fat in the liver, once you know that insulin is regulating tri hepatic triglyceride, well, dietary fat doesn't really have anything to do with insulin. It won't mm. affect insulin. So I, I see obesity as a hormonal thing, actually. And I think hunger is probably hormonal as well. Um, and so that's the other thing. So I didn't understand the physiology, really, if I'm being honest. I never really got why, how it was that eating fat, you ended up with diabetes. Plus, I'd never really, I wasn't convinced I'd seen it. And then the final thing was, in 25 years, I never saw a single case of drug-free diabetes remission. Mm -hmm. I never saw somebody that gave up fat and then I took them off metformin. And now, as I'm sure we, we want to tell our listeners, I've got 106 people um, since 20, so since 2013, I've got 106 people with diabetes who are in drug-free remission. Just I think astonishing. I well, it is astonishing. I'm terribly proud of that. I hadn't seen that a single time in 25 years. How old was I going to get before it, you know, it happened? And now um, I saw the I saw an extra one yesterday. That's number 106. So that's really working. And I I. I am, I'll repeat, a pragmatist. I wish to be effective. And uh, the low-fat thing did not deliver. It was disappointing. And in fact, I was thinking of giving up medicine. I was so disappointed because I felt I'd tried. I'd just missed the true causes of illness. Well, I think we're all extremely glad that you did not give up medicine <laughs> at that stage. Um, but, but interestingly, this, um, so I agree with everything that you just said. I, th I think it's fantastic what you've done. But I always hear and I read to try and read both sides of the argument, right, and get a balanced view. And the idea of increasing fat intake also increases postprandial lipemia. So that is just fat in the blood if we're going to talk about it yes, simply. Yes, yes. And that can also potentially damage the glycocalyx that you said that um, high sugars does. I was wondering if you saw any evidence of that in your clinical practice. Well, that's a great question. So in the, in the early days, what I was doing was regarded as experimental. The idea of cutting sugar and starchy carbs was uh, regarded as newfangled, mm -hmm. which is actually very odd, you know. Uh, because the first time the low-carb diet was used effectively was in 1797. So it isn't actually newfangled. But anyway, let's leave that to one side, although it's a fascinating <laughs> yeah. thing to Certainly pursue. Is. So it was, what I was doing was regarded as unusual um, and by some as dangerous. Um, and so, as a responsible clinician, I started keeping meticulous records of what happened. And there were various concerns. So one of the concerns was people uh, consuming more full fat dairy mm -hmm. and meat and so on. The lipid profiles would um, deteriorate. And I soon saw that actually the lipid profiles were improving. And in fact, improving so much that there's, uh, I, I wrote a paper probably 
The best known one is one in BMJ Nutrition, published about a year ago uh, now. And if any, if any of the viewers are interested to see that paper, I'd be delighted. All you need to do is Google. I will put BMJ it in the show notes for listeners to right. look at. Okay. Co- yep. Collaboration with Ned Pro and Schumann Ray. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, such, such fun. So we actually looked at what happened to the um, lipid profiles. And there was an earlier paper as well that I collaborated with Professor Brady, um, a cardiologist from uh, Glasgow. And again, in that paper, we were looking at the lipids and they improved significantly. So that's what happens. So the cholesterol goes down, the HDL goes up, the protective cholesterol goes up. The triglyceride reduces by about a third on average. Mm, yeah. So in every clinic I'm doing, I'm seeing improving lipid profiles, which I wasn't seeing before. And I'm stopping statins with monotonous regularity because patients are improving so much by their diet. So, and in fact, there is another, there's a really useful meta-analysis on this on the effect of low carb diets was published in Liverpool a few years ago. And we'll, I'll send you the link for that. But a great big meta-analysis published in Liverpool about three years ago, again, saying that low carbohydrate diets, a well-formulated low carbohydrate diet will deliver significant improvements in lipid profile. Um, I don't know what more to say. Yes, I was worried. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm responsible, I was worried. But in every clinic I do, I'm seeing improving lipid profiles with people who tell me they're having more full fat dairy and meat and so on. So, I mean, this is you, you touched on a really important point when you when you highlighted well formulated. Right. Because I think a low fat, low carbohydrate diet, sorry, could be you be sausages and cheese and that's it. Yes. Yeah. But actually, if you have a baseline of whole foods. I think it's very hard to go wrong. So f- emphasis yes. on like whole food vegetables. Ben, and Yeah, that's a great point you're making. And, and it, I'd like to develop it slightly. Of course. So, so yeah, low carb could be just pepperoni and Diet Coke. Yes. There you go. That's a low carb diet. But who in their right minds thinks that is actually a good idea? <laughs> and so uh, all the other point I'd say is, there are as many diets as there are people. So you and I might think we're both on the same diet, but actually when we get down to the nitty gritty, I'll find that you eat a lot of fish and I don't, or all sorts of things make a difference. And so to say there is a low carb diet or a low fat diet is actually nonsense. Um, And that's why I try so hard to help my patients understand the principles behind a healthy diet so that instead of memorizing uh, my wisdom, <laughs> they they can come up for themselves with a better formulated low carbohydrate diet. And so I my hints are: turn the white stuff green. You know the bread and the potatoes and the rice. Well, it's, those are empty calories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not Why don't you nutritionally eat? dense? That's right. That's right. I, and. Um, So turn those green. And then the other thing is nutritional density fascinates me. So actually liver is probably the most nutritionally dense food on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what 
what's the bang you're getting for your buck in terms of the food you're eating um, and so people need um, help to to tailor the diet according to their what they enjoy the foods I want people to enjoy food so and they have preferences and some of them have religious beliefs as well that have to be factored in so that um, the idea of how a diet is formulated is is important but you have to work with the client you can't just tell them what to eat because that's what I used to tell people far too much and now I'm working I'm collaborating with people uh, to find out the kinds of foods they enjoy so that I'm better in a better position to advise them. I love that. Couldn't agree with you more there. Going back on what you said with the um, the statins, because I think we're, we're like we're very much in agreement with the diet. You said you were removing statins from patients because you weren't seeing any negative side effects from the low-carbohydrate diet, but cholesterol in and of itself is not an independent risk factor for heart disease. It needs to be coupled with multiple... <laughs> how <laughs> right you are ben. yes <laughs> so good heavens you're right as a predictor that's another don't get me started that's another <laughs> thing well, cholesterol well let's talk about cholesterol because i'm mad about this okay let's go so first of this is my career <laughs> cholesterol so first of all i was told as a gp tell your patients not to eat eggs because there's certain death eggs and I used to tell patients who they used to say, what's a shame, doctor? I mean, are you sure? And I'd say, well, you could have maybe two a week as a treat. Dear, dear, dear. <laughs> That's shocking. And then eventually we're told that dietary cholesterol has no link at all to serum cholesterol. So all those years of heavy advice were nonsense because there is no link between dietary cholesterol and serum cholesterol. So why are we talking about diet and cholesterol? Apart from, I now find low carb makes a difference. That's an interesting thing. So then anyway, all right. So we, we learned that dietary cholesterol doesn't have an effect on serum cholesterol. Then the next thing I learned is, oh, actually just headline cholesterol isn't much use. It took them about 10 years to filter that down to a jobbing <laughs> GP. <laughs> oh no, no, it's the balance of um, you know the of the LD, LDL cholesterol with the with the HDL cholesterol. That's what you should be doing, Dr. Minion. You know, that's that's really the problem. And then we go on with that for a few years. And then people discover that the LDL cholesterol doesn't predict heart disease either. Oh, <laughs> and apparently that's because I've got the particle size wrong. All right. Only I can't measure particle size in general practice. So that's another 10 years wasted. It's just beyond belief, really, the uh, merry dance that I've been led in my career, bullying patients, telling them not to eat things that then turn eggs. It was all nonsense. And then we find full fat dairy. Again, nonsense. There are, there are perfectly respectable studies show that increasing full-fat dairy helps with strokes um so yes as i say don't get me started now what a lot of this came from the framingham study and i'm going yes. you're going to allow me a little a little diversion into liver function because i love liver function yes of course i might come back at you with a few points but by all okay. means carry on Li give me well 
So one of the things I noticed in the early days when I was, do you remember I told you I was measuring everything because I thought, well, I was getting hate mail actually. People were writing to me telling me that, that what I was doing was dangerous and my patients would, you know, there'd be vitamin deficiencies. Um, and so I was getting hate mail. I was being shouted at in public meetings as well. So I'm measuring everything. And the thing that astonished me most was rapid improvements in liver function within weeks, particularly the gamma GT, an enzyme um, that is one of the ways we measure liver function. I had people who'd had grossly abnormal gamma GT levels for 10 years, and it would be normal within a month or six weeks. Astonishing astonishing mm -hmm. improvements in liver function. And in fact, one of the first papers I ever wrote was on gamma GT and what happens with low carb. And when I researched it, the Framingham study was how, uh, this was a, a huge study from the States, which uh, uh, monitored the residents of Framingham in the USA. And it's one of the ways that they said, you know, maybe cholesterol has something to do with heart disease. But who knew in the Framingham study, actually, they were far more convinced by gamma GT. Right. So the Framingham study, there was a paper written by the authors looking at the data saying that abnormal gamma GT is, I don't know, something like quadruply more important than a cholesterol from the Framingham study. That's fascinating. It, I wasn't aware of it? that. Yeah, Hidden and buried, but I assure you it's there. So that liver function abnormal liver function is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease than anything to do with the cholesterol. Um, mm. So there we are. You can pull me back to wherever you want to go now, but I just couldn't resist the, the Gamma GT and the Framingham study. <laughs> no, I think it's great. Um, I'm, I, will, uh, I will link to that in the show notes if it's widely yeah, yeah. accessible. Um, yeah, yeah. For listeners and i will be looking at that myself after the show yeah um where were we before so we're talking about cholesterol as an independent risk factor you know interestingly enough because i try different diets this isn't the point i was going to make but you reminded me of it i try different diets periodically and i recently tried something called the paleo ketogenic diet pop popularized by sarah myhill and my cholesterol is not high but it's kind of in the upper reference range, right? I'm not worried about it. I've done, I've done many tests looking at the particle size and whatever. I'm not worried. The, um, but what I found was introducing flax seeds, this flaxseed bread that she had. She had a recipe in her book, and my cholesterol plummeted like it really did. And the mechanism, I think, is because it's so high in soluble fiber, it's binding bile salts. And just removing them. I've had a look at this in the in the literature, but it was astonishing because I I get my blood test. Um, I do a lipid profile probably once every six months, three to six months, just because I'm interested in how things uh, how things shift as I'm changing my dietary patterns. Um, and it was honestly amazing. And it was just interesting when you say changing the white stuff to green and the increase in vegetables probably does have an effect on like pulling things out. Bile salts are, are normally comprised of cholesterol. And then if you don't get that reabsorption, you're probably likely going to lower cholesterol levels by that mechanism as well, as well as many others. And when you spoke about so, dairy, sorry, go on. 
Well, I, it's just also fascinating, isn't it? And uh, we're surrounded by things we don't actually know. So, Ben, you don't actually know whether that high cholesterol that you had is actually important or dangerous. No, you I mean, it was that, upper reference range. It wasn't yeah, like, it wasn't exactly, high. But you, yeah. we, you don't even know whether that's dangerous. Well, and, we don't even know you, if high you lower it. is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. yes. Or low, and then you lower it. Is that a good thing? I, my, you know, your gut feeling was obviously that, that it was, but you say obviously because the links are not clear and then we yeah. have the hyper the hyper responders so just so some people particularly fit thin people a few of them get a sky high cholesterol so my wife jen has a cholesterol of 11 right yes i mean okay. that's extremely high yeah well that's high isn't it so is she in terrible danger should i worry and how shall we handle that what does it mean and the trouble is I can't get the particle size on it, so we don't know. So what we actually did was get a calcium score. So that's, we, we and I think that's the calcium scores predict heart disease far better than any lipid profile ever did. Mm-hmm. Far, far better. And I'm lucky, uh, very lucky to be friendly with Scott Murray, a, a consultant cardiologist who specializes in preventative cardiology. So we had a... Um, a calcium score done of Jen's coronary arteries and um, you're supposed to worry if your score's over about 40 or something. Anyway, her score is zero. She has the coronary Incredible. arteries of a baby. She has a coronary arteries of a baby. So this cholesterol of 11, we've, con- we've decided just not to worry about it because a coronary, they, they couldn't find any calcium in her coronary arteries at all. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this just like highlights the point that we don't know exactly what drives this condition. And like this CRP inflammation, which we know is one of the drivers, but I think cholesterol doesn't seem to be predictive. And there's many other people, even in a community which I don't necessarily support, apart from maybe short term, is like the carnivore community where they're just eating meat and water and um, they normally have very high levels of cholesterol but when they do things like a calcium score or um i can't remember what you you call it it's like a an ultrasound of the carotid artery to understand the calcification very low to non-existent um of any signs of cardiovascular disease so yeah and just a point on that as well um so I'm always fascinated by people like the Inuits or the Maasai and, and the, the Inuits on the diet of blubber and meat and, or the, and fish and so on. They ate a lot of blubber, actually, mm-hmm. seal blubber. Cardiovascular disease was unknown. It was unknown. But it was only when the Western diet was imported that it has now become common. And uh, with monotonous regularity all over the world as we've exported the western diet cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes have followed everywhere all over the world and um there's some really interesting work on i think it's it's svensson that the the guy the icelandic guy that went and lived with the inuits in about 1905 and he went just carnivore Yes, And then at the time, the nutritionalists said, well, you will die of vitamin deficiency if you go carnivore. And so they popped him in, um, in hospital in New York 
I think, for a year. Yeah, in isolation. You absolutely yes, right. yeah. and he didn't die. Of, he didn't. They all said he'll die, and he didn't die. Again, nutrition, full of questions, full of fascinating things. And um, I'm quite interested in what is. I'm interested in. Here's a thought: If you had a, it, Ben, if you had a pet human being which none of us should keep pet human beings. But if you had a pet human being, what would you feed What it? would be the diet? Yes. So a <laughs> bit like I'm fascinated by animals. So I, I run eight bird reserves and all my life I've been fascinated by wild animals and, and how to keep them. And you have to think, well, what's, what's the, what is the best diet to keep a human on? Um, and it, one thing we can all agree on, it's not junk food, is it? Well, exactly. That was the one thing I'd be certain of. I would not be feeding it any process or, or myself. Let's call it myself. I, w- yeah. I wouldn't be feeding myself any processed food um, for sure. Or certainly on the odd occasion, absolutely fine or, you know, but I think we just over consume these things on a meal by meal, like every single meal. Yeah. And we well, don't even what... realize it because it's so ingrained in our culture and society now. Well, it is. That's what I'm reflecting. If you remember earlier on, I was saying if you just go and just have a careful look at the shelves in a supermarket and look for proper food and you'll go up and down searching and there's things in packets with long lists. This isn't the way we were eating before. This is not when I was brought up how we were eating. And younger people like you won't know that there was a world before type 2 diabetes and obesity (laughs) because you've just been brought and a world before snacking. You know, snacking, when I was young, was rude. My mother would say that you should never be seen eating on the street because that's common. And she would never allow us to eat on the street. We were allowed sweets from the post office on a Friday, and that was a lot. The world has changed. Advertising has changed the world. Uh, The whole idea of convenience foods. And uh, one of my, another hint on the whole, don't eat anything you ever saw advertised. Think about that. Ooh, because yeah. Think like about that. it because, you know, advertising is used to change your desires, to change your buying habits. Mm-hmm. And my goodness, it's worked. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's been successful. They've made a lot of money. And, um, but think about what it's done. Advertising has changed how we eat, changed what we want, changed what we think we want. And now what we have is a snack culture, a treat culture. And the word treat fills me with rage. Typical old guy getting angry about everything. But it's because, (laughs) um, you know, this idea of treat yourself. So I have children having chocolate Cheerios or whatever nonsense they're having for breakfast. And then they can't apparently get through a morning at school without a snack. So they're given um, a bun of some kind or a a bar of something. And then lunch has got also carbohydrates in. We're having sugar with our sugar, with our sugar, with our sugar all day long. And the results are upsetting, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I entirely agree with you. And with the chocolate Cheerios, let's, let's focus on that because you mentioned it. Having that, a bowl on the weekend is absolutely fine. In my opinion, would be fine, right? As long as it's considered... Like, this is a treat. 
I know you don't like treats. So we'll touch on touch upon that. But well, we can rephrase. If I think what we hope we're trying to do, Ben, is rephrase. So of course, life is about contrast, mm-hmm. the light and the dark, and you need both. You need the light and the dark. You need the light to appreciate uh, life at times. So, I want people to enjoy food, and uh, I think what you're saying. This is the the other word that needs great care is moderation. Yes. Great care, because what what I think that's what you're coming on to, Ben. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'll I'll pass the ball back to you. Uh, carry on, Ben. Carry on. No, no, no. You, you were right. You were exactly right. I think it's important because when you said you need the dark to appreciate the light, I really like that idea. Um, and I also think it's people call it like if they follow a specific restrictive diet they say they're gonna have a cheat meal and i don't like the word cheat but i like the word treat you're rewarding yourself for doing something beneficial for your body your health etc um and i think doing that periodically is quite healthy and probably even though it might not be good for your blood sugar it's very good for your soul um which i think needs to be considered as well I'm going to agree and disagree with you. Okay, go. This is fun, I suppose it depends on the foundation of health that you're working from. So from people which with a chronic illness, you know, you might reconsider there. But for people with a baseline of health, I'll let you speak now. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to agree and disagree. Let's start with agreement. Let's go. Uh, I repeat, I want people to enjoy food. I think an interest in food is a great thing in your life. And we should, you know, encourage young people to be interested in food and to enjoy it and know where, you know, curiosity about where does it come from? That tastes better than that. I prefer that. That's superior to that. So I'm all for that. But I've learned a lot more. Even in the last few years, we've been looking at our failures in my practice at Norwood Avenue. Why do people fail? Mm-hmm. Why is the low-carb diet for some people so very difficult? So I'm remorselessly interested in failure. Why? What went on? And I think that many of the population are carb addicts, many of them. And a bit like um, somebody with an alcohol problem or smoking or whatever, that treat you suggest can be very dangerous if you're a carb addict because we all, I've seen so many patients who do, are doing brilliantly and they reverse their diabetes and they've done the works and then Christmas comes along and they come back fatter than ever. Mm-hmm. And that, that first mince pie and the second mince pie and then months later, they're still eating uh, sugar and carbohydrate. So some people need to be really really careful so if you're somebody so my mother is somebody she's 86 uh, she's somebody that can have that box of chocolates that I buy for Christmas she's just having one a day that's all she does I'm the person that eats the entire box in the first day and will so open a second box. So right well then be careful with your treat that's why some people need to be careful with treats so um I helped design a low-carbohydrate program for diabetes.co.uk, about 460,000 low-carb program. 
So we found a thousand of them and we, we assessed them for carb addiction. So the, there, there, are, um, there are a set of standard questions to find out if you're addicted to a food substance. Mm-hmm. And 26% of them scored highly. So they were food addicts, 26% wow. of the thousand people with type 2 diabetes. Yes. And if you think about it, type 2 diabetes is sort of selecting people with a problem with carbohydrate. So this is, I mean, my wife is a consultant health psychologist and she's utterly fascinated now with how to help people with carb addiction. Because I assure you, there are people who cannot give up bread. And I've had people cry when they tell me how the reason they weigh 150 kilos is they're eating loaves of bread a day. Or I had another guy recently, it was him. He was eating cornflakes in a mixing bowl. The dose, you know, the dose, <laughs> the, um, the portion it was so enormous. So just because maybe I think often we can't imagine that other people eat very differently. So we think that moderation is okay or whatever, but there are people who are genuinely really struggling with carb addiction and um, there is no help for them. So for them, the idea of it's okay to have carbs in moderation, it's very unlikely they will ever escape. Um, And those are the people that have to go keto and stay that way. Mm, so, okay. As you see, I agree with you, and um, I agree, and it's a and disagree, depending on your relationship, food, and the baseline health, as you say. So, if you're basically healthy and you're happy with your weight, and once a week you have your Cheerios, and it's limited to that, what's I don't see what the problem is. Mm-hmm. But actually, the number of people who have good metabolic health in the UK is dropping and dropping and dropping. Yes. In the States, the number of people with good metabolic health is, I think, about 25% now. Mm. Oh, so, I did not know that. That's yeah. Yeah. If you low. look at if you look at the um, and meta good metabolic health means your triglyceride is normal, your blood pressure is normal, you don't have central obesity and you have an, a normal fasting insulin. So in the States, the number uh, who are actually healthy is surprisingly small. And uh, the same is happening here. Um, so there we are. You can ask something else now. Finish with that. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, I, I find that fascinating, and I I do actually very much agree with you um, with regards to the sugar addiction. And bread's an interesting one. Bread contains compounds that actually bind to opiate receptors in the brain, so it's, it's addictive, yes. like not just due to the carbohydrates, but due to com- compounds in the bread. The yes. same is actually true to dairy. And I'm not sure whether you see this if people overeat dairy in your in your clinic, but you have these substances called acasomorphins, and they also bind to these receptors, um, and therefore can be very very addictive. You get this with people going vegan who um, just cannot cut the dairy, and there's a reason behind that. And yeah. I, I like uh, you know there's this the, you know like um, milk drunk with babies. Yes. Apparently one yeah. of the reasons is due to the high amount of acasomorphins in breast milk. Um, I'm not sure how true that is. but um, No, it's true. Yeah. So I, I've researched this based on a patient. So you, you're brilliant. I, I've never met anybody that knew about the acasomorphins. So let's talk <laughs> those for a minute. Sure. So I had, a, I had a patient with intractable constipation. Terrible, terrible constipation. 
And no matter how much magnesium or lactulose or senna or whatever this poor person had, they were, uh, and in fact, they were, they were so constipated. They were busting blood vessels in their eyes oh. trying to get the poo out. Can you imagine That's the awful. suffering? And I, of course, referred this person to a gastroenterologist who did the uh, up periscope and pronounced it all normal. So whatever I gave to that patient made no difference. And they suffered for years, really, really suffered. And I upped the senna and I upped the magnesium. And um, anyway, mm. eventually I, I decided to think about it in a different way. I'd always thought that constipation was due to something you weren't having, like enough fibre or enough fluid. But what about if you turn it on its head? What if the constipation was something you were having? And for this person, it was dairy. And from the day that that person cut out cheese and dairy, years and years have gone by and the constipation never comes back apart from if he eats cheese. Wow. That poor guy. And I've discovered others since then. So what you say, based on my N equals one, but actually there was an RCT on using cheese to cure diarrhea. Isn't that because of the caseomorphines and everything? I love biology because there's a reason for everything. So why is milk addictive? Mm -hmm. You want babies to be desperate to feed. You don't want to you don't want to struggle to feed your baby. Mm -hmm. That baby needs to feed to live. And so milk is very um, addictive and yes i also have patients who need to come off dairy because that can be a reason for obesity and i regularly find people and when we go into it pints of milk or blocks of cheese i saw somebody yesterday and we agreed he would have to stop buying cheese so again what an interesting little side arm that was and you're the first person that has ever interviewed me and knew about the caseomorphines well done well thanks David I'll take that as a as a compliment yes do <laughs> with the um the occasional could just to clarify your point were you saying that person was overeating cheese or eating not something well, not, not overeating uh we got it um so poor guy experimented for me <laughs> and um as as little as an ounce of cheese would stop him, stop his bowels for four days. Right. Wow. So 30 grams, that is not a lot yeah. at all. It's about the size Single, of it. Yeah. So we did it a few times because we couldn't believe it. So I, I'd say, you wouldn't mind just trying that again, would you? And, and it sometimes would happen accidentally where somebody would make him a cheesy thing or, you know, or whatever. So, um, and when, when we went, so often there's a clue in the history. And the clue in the history here was the constipation wasn't all the time. Occasionally it was better. It was definitely worse on holidays. And when we unraveled it afterwards, that's because this was actually a low carb person and they always had the cheese board. So he had a lot of cheese on holiday. Right. So anyway, so there we are. But it, 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 the sensitivity was to an ounce. Do you, do you find that people that are that have this problem also have an addiction to bread? Ah, right. You've just oh, opened I've called, a whole, I've, uh, 
I've called it a problem as well, which is I probably shouldn't have done, but like this issue, yeah. All right. Um, So Jen tells me that a lot of it's to do with brain, happy brain substances like dopamine and so on. And that she says that if you have one addiction, it's quite likely you may have others Mm -hmm. and you're you're vulnerable. So, uh, and that is why, why is it? So when people give it give up cigarettes, they're chronically short of dopamine so that then they start eating more and put on weight. Or you find that people, people who have bariatric surgery who are almost by nature food addicts, and then you put them into a low-calorie jail, don't you? You take away part of their stomach. And we know, we absolutely know that a proportion of them go on to have problems with alcohol. Right. Definitely. Definitely. That's it's understood. And, and that's because those people, they, 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 they were, some of the pleasure in life, some of the dopamine in life was from chronic overeating. Mm-hmm. You take that away in a, brutal, in a brutal way, which is bariatric surgery. And uh, some of those people are very, very unhappy and some turn to alcohol. So there is a link, according to Jen, um, that people who are addicted to one thing may well be vulnerable to other addictions and it can transfer over your life. And so Jen sees, um, uh, is sugar the gateway drug? Because you see, we, we, we give sugar to children we reinforce them. Well done. You did brilliantly in your exams. Have a chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. Have a bun. You did so well. It's your birthday. Here's the cake. It's Christmas. Here's chocolate. So that you could, if you wanted, if, if, a bit like the Pavlovian dogs, you know, if you wanted to program young children to associate uh, pleasure and fun with sugar, you couldn't, you couldn't design a better society. And then uh, it's my belief that many of them are sugar or carb addicts by in their teenage. And then um, you're vulnerable, that same pathway, alcohol might work the same and so might other things. Smoking, so things like that. I guess. Well, it's a worry. Uh, it's a worry. And that's, I, I, I think we don't think nearly enough about the nutrition of children and, and what we're building for their future. I think it's a really serious uh, area that needs a lot more thought um, although the guidelines are there I forget what it is I think children over about five are not supposed to have more than six teaspoons of sugar a day still a lot though it is a lot but I wish more of them managed the six teaspoons because you know by the time you've had your sugary breakfast cereal that's probably it um, and so I really worry about the nutrition for children for young people uh, and where that is leading in terms of their mental health as well as their physical health. Well, that's maybe something I'll touch on in another podcast. Um, it's something which I've not even considered talking about just because I've not thought of it before, but you bring up such an important point um, that I have to dive into. Well, let, uh, well I'll, I'll develop it slightly more. And, uh, um, so let's talk about the calories in, calories out battle sure well i would agree yeah i i would agree that obesity is a result of more calories in and fewer calories out 
in uh, I got this from Gary Torbs, the same way as being rich or a big bank balance is the same as more money in the bank account uh, compared to the money out of the bank account. Mm -hmm. But having said that, you haven't learned anything because you presumably, Ben, would like to be a rich person. So if I just tell you that the way to become rich is to get more money in the bank than you take out of it, it's a truism. So that little bit of information. So if I tell you the way to avoid uh, being a fat Ben is to eat uh, uh, fewer calories than you put out, you didn't learn anything. You've learned nothing. And that is because calories in depends upon appetite and hunger. Mm-hmm. And you have to address, you have to address hunger and appetite. We also know that calories out, metabolism, David Ludwig has done some wonderful work on this. Yeah. That calories out, yeah, your actual metabolism depends upon what sort of food you eat. So um, carbohydrates slow your metabolism. So that uh, carbohydrates make you hungry and slow your metabolism. So that's kind of a far more useful to you than put fewer calories in your mouth because that doesn't doesn't really help and i think the other thing is um i think there's an ethical view that i take now when i think back to how i used to bully my obese patients with obesity telling them to eat less when they they then just felt like a failure when it didn't work or they tried really hard and then they failed so what i'd done was slightly cruel because i set them up to fail and then they felt like a failure Mm-hmm. because telling them to just eat less if you don't look into the cause of hunger and appetite and also the um, what affects metabolism yeah then you you're not you're not helping your patients and, and insulin is a really important factor oh, yeah I, mean... I see go on no stop i'm stopping now <laughs> You can carry on. I'm just like, no. you say so many things and I just want to like jump in every so often. So apologies. Um, you spoke about the psychological element before. And I also think that's a, that's a huge driver, but I loved um, what you spoke about when you said um, in order to get rich, you just save money. But actually that's dependent on what job you have in terms of like, yeah. what are you eating? <laughs> and also where you invest that money being like where nutrient partitioning, where is that going on your body? Right. And there is some really interesting studies done on low glycemic diets and how you can actually, I'm going to, I'm going to use the term get away with, but you can eat more calories and actually not gain weight. Um, Right. Yeah. And the reason behind this, I believe is like, if you look at, how do I put this into layman's terms? Essentially, the the glucose spike will be less, and therefore your body's better t- um, able to tolerate the the calories that you that you're taking in, and that includes things like amino acids are slowly released into the bloodstream. So if you get a big spike in amino acids, you can't actually utilize them all all that well. That's why bodybuilders normally have multiple times they eat in a day to get protein spikes and amino acids, right? They break it down into smaller portions. And with carbohydrates, if they're really slower, you're going to have this less insulin spike, less blood sugar spike, and more likely to be burned than stored as fat. Just to develop what you've said, Ben, if the listeners consider two alternative meals, you can have 400 calories 
of uh, Black Forest Gatto. Or you can have 400 calories of um, salmon. And we all know that those two meals will affect your behavior and your appetite differently. Mm -hmm. If you have a massive block of protein or a huge steak, you're full. You're, you're finished. You can't eat protein endlessly. But I know from personal experience, and many of the listeners will also know, that their ability to eat cake is not as limited and that you'll want more and you'll cut another little bit off and another bit and go back for a second one. And I laugh with my grandchildren about their separate pudding stomach. Oh, everyone. All, everyone yeah, has that. Yeah. Yeah. And so calories are not equal. And so although it's true that obesity, I agree um, to repeat myself, that uh, obesity um, is a sort of mathematical thing to do with calories in and calories out. It's singularly unhelpful to tell patients wishing to lose weight that but to to investigate what makes them hungry and what might speed up their metabolism is far more useful i'm about to get into the weeds here i wanted to move on but when you said speed up your metabolism there is reports of the ketogenic diet i mean your low carbohydrate diet is less than 130 grams of carbohydrates i believe is that correct correct so it wouldn't yes. necessarily be ketotic but ketosis Correct. there are some like below 50 grams of carbohydrates some people can enter into ketosis i actually have to be in 30 grams for that to happen and that's just burning fats as can fuel. i can i just explain that in in for the listeners in terms of what i said at the beginning mm -hmm. so we just need to go right back to insulin and i was talking about what insulin does in terms of getting rid of blood sugar but insulin does another thing insulin prevents you from burning fat so that if you have um, 80 grams of carbohydrate a day you're producing just too much insulin to be able to burn your own fat so if i keep eating biscuits through the day even half a biscuit regularly will stop me from accessing my own fat reserves and burning fat because insulin prevents fat burning so that if you have less than it's about 50 grams for some people and 30 for others. If you have less than about 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, the insulin level is suddenly low enough to allow you to burn your own fat. Many of my patients, of course, have a lot of their own fat to burn. And so this is really important to them. And they love becoming fat burners because that's part of the reason they're not hungry, because suddenly they can access and burn their own belly fat. So I think that's an extra point about insulin that really can't be mentioned too many times because it's key to understanding hunger. Because if your insulin levels drop and you can then burn your own fat. Well, so at the moment, so I'm having a fasting day today. I shan't eat all day. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Yeah. And um, it's, it's now one o'clock and I'm not hungry. Why am I not hungry? Because I'm burning my own fat. Mm -hmm. As uh, Because i my metabolism is used to burning fat. I can have a fasting day once a week without any difficulty. And I will go 24 hours without eating with no difficulty because I'm a fat burner. 
I'm sorry, that was an interruption, but I wanted to link it in with insulin for you. No, I, I completely agree. And if people want to understand more about fasting, I actually did a podcast with Dr. Joseph Anton about that and why 24-hour fasts are great for autophagy, cellular yeah. cleaning mechanisms, etc. But going back to um, ketosis, the reason why I mentioned it was because you said carbohydrates lower your metabolic rate. But I've read several case reports and there was a trial, not a, um, this was kind of like a sub-study where they measured thyroid output as part of ketosis. And thyroid output dips with um, the prolonged ketogenic diets. Now, I'm not sure whether this is clinically relevant. Sorry, <laughs> go on, David, I can see you've well, got a point. I have got a point. Do you remember me telling you I measured everything at the beginning because I just wanted to see? Yes. Right. Well, I was also measuring thyroid function. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you something really interesting that I noticed. And um, I'm so lucky because um, I have a medical statistician who works uh, so hard uh, for me, Christine. And so I, got, I can get the stats done on my work. The thyroid stimulating hormone levels drop significantly when you go low carb. But is it just as you get increased sensitivity to insulin, you, I believe, become more, insula, uh, more sensitive, sensitive to thyroxine. And that would explain why the TSH levels dropped, because perhaps you're more sensitive to thyroxine is another. So there are two interpretations of that, but it's mm. TSH that drops, not T4. When I, I measured both, it was the TSH that dropped. And so if the TSH is dropping, the pituitary is thinking, I've got enough thyroxine. And I think you're becoming more sensitive to thyroxine. I haven't written that one up because I'm always behind on the papers I'm writing. Uh, but I've got the stats for it. So that another interruption on thyroid. No, that's, that's fantastic. It would just be interesting whether you had patients which experienced any like symptoms of hypothyroidism, low thyroid output, and therefore reduced metabolism metabolism like cold hands and feet or anything like that they've never been case reports now no no i i i haven't they mainly have more energy well the yeah, there you go then <laughs> so the, the 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 two things that patients tell me every single week in every single clinic is the first thing i'm so surprised not to be hungry they're they're always amazed because they're generally people maybe with a so if i just share again with the viewers my average patient is 61 years old and weighs about 100 kilos so if that gives you they're about my age and they weigh 100 kilos and so they're people that have been overeating for a long time and they're astonished to not be hungry that's the first thing then the second thing is it's really common that after a while they start exercising more because they go kind of fidgety and start saying, well, I've joined a gym or I'm going walking or I'm doing whatever. So those are the two things. And I, I, on the whole, they say they need less sleep. So I need 90 minutes less sleep a day now than I needed when I was 55. So that's the kind of thing, less sleep, more energy and not being hungry. Those, that's what I'm told commonly in clinical practice. Win, win, win. So... If I ask you maybe quite a difficult question, or maybe it's quite easy, like who does car low carb not work for? That's a difficult question. And, and, oh, let me think. 
Or if there's no one, that's fine as well. But I would be interested well, just in case. I, uh, yeah, I, I think... Right, here's the perspective on this. You know, when you're talking about low-carb or high-carb, there's an assumption of what normal carb eating is there. You've, there's an assumption. There's a flaw in your argument because you've <laughs> assumed that there's a sort of normal carb. And I think the idea of normal sort of a carbohydrate, a sort of normal amount of carbohydrate, we need to look to caveman and woman for that. Because you now have, Ben, you've got the physiology of caveman. You haven't changed really significantly in the last 3,000 or 4,000 years. Mm -hmm. And and so if we, we should look to our ancestors for what was a normal amount of carbohydrate to consume. And if we, if we think about Ben in his cave, living wherever your ancestors will have lived, um, the, the point was that the access to carbohydrates was seasonal. So you, you will have gorged, I'm sure, on blackberries and so on in the autumn. But I wonder what carbohydrate you ate all winter. Probably none. Mm -hmm. You might have got a few nuts hidden in your cave. In fact, we know that you were eating enormous numbers of, uh, of nuts. Um, hazelnuts were a great staple. There's, there's huge numbers of shells. But a lot of the time you weren't eating carbohydrate because you, you were hunting stuff and you were eating meat. In the summer, you were eating shoots and leaves. Not a lot of carbohydrate in that. There's a little bit of carbohydrate in bulrush roots, and you may have been eating those, but there were no refined carbs. So you have to, what is normal in modern times? We are right at the end of a high carb. We're in the, we're in the high carbohydrate age. So I think that's why I'm finding so, I keep thinking, well, there must be disadvantages to the low carb diet. But I keep struggling to find those disadvantages. And I think it's because I'm living in the high carbohydrate age. And I call it, you know, we, we've got carbohydrate man and Prosecco woman. That's what's going on. <laughs> That's what's going on. This is the age. We live in the age of carbohydrate man. But in, uh, we were designed as caveman. And that was low carb and probably higher protein. And that's why I'm struggling to find disadvantages. The, the disadvantages are that people who can't stick it or really struggle are the carb addicts. And some of those mm. become distressed and really struggle and need a lot of extra help. And uh, so that, that, that's my, that was an interesting question, Ben. But, uh, you know, when you argue with people, uh, my son does philosophy or did philosophy. And you always have to go for the premises, don't you? And your premise there was that we we know what normal carbohydrate is well we uh, consider we your diet low carb so that's what yes. i was referring to more so yeah then but for, but my diet now for caveman would have been high carb yeah well, yes i mean there's people that would argue that um but i don't know about ancestral health enough to uh to go back and forth with you on that one oh, i'm sure i'm sure we could do but we don't have time <laughs> right fine <laughs> so i want to leave that one there for clarity, because I've realized this, we, we've gone into the weeds a lot on low carb and type 2 diabetes, etc., but not actually identified the makeup in terms of proteins and fatty acids 
of the the diet that you recommend. And now I know it's not exact um, from because I've seen the cards that that you give out to patients, but I'd love to know your thoughts and um, what right. the people at home can expect. Okay, so the, f- the first thing is you're going to give a link to the BMJ nutrition paper. Absolutely. That's right. Well, that's open access. And that means you can all, uh, you don't have to pay to, to read the paper. In the paper is, for everybody, is the diet sheet I've been using since 2013. Please steal it, use it. If you look in the supplementary file, I've popped all the things I can think of that may be of interest to clinicians. So there's the low-carb protocol for the practice. There's the uh, some of the psychological things we use. So do have a look at the, uh, the supplementary file. When we come to the diet itself, um, I don't ever talk about grams of carbohydrate with my patients because my patients don't, I don't want you to weigh your food. That's not normal. Normal people don't weigh every meal. I want you to understand nutrition and just eat food with your family without weighing it. So there's no talk of grams of carbohydrate. What I'm trying to do is help my patients avoid, certainly I would actually cut sugar out, table sugar out altogether for all of us. I don't believe it's empty calories. It's probably addictive. It's bad for all of us in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And then I'd have you really cut back on starchy carbohydrates because it turns into so much sugar. And that's my teaspoon of sugar equivalents, which are also in the paper. So a bowl, 150 grams of boiled rice is roughly equivalent to 10 teaspoons of sugar. So if you have diabetes, rice isn't a really good food. And um, so I'm trying to get people to turn the white stuff green. I'm trying to get them to increase the protein and probably mildly increase the fat. But this depends. If you're a very heavy person, well, you would hope to burn your own fat rather than have fat in the diet. Mm -hmm. Why have dietary fat if you weigh 150 kilos? Uh, For them, I would say high protein. Um, low carbohydrate and low fat because you would hope to go into ketosis and burn your fat. Um, I think we're coming towards the end now. One of the things I'd say, each of us should see ourselves as a lifelong experiment. And Ben, you've experimented and I'd say to everybody, well, be honest about what works. So try reducing carbohydrate and see how you feel. Try increasing the protein. See what happens then. Try increasing the fat and experiment. See yourself as a lifelong experiment. Be curious. What do you enjoy? How do you feel? And I've learned to be really careful if food makes me hungry because I know that the more I eat, the more hungry I become. That's why I have a fasting day. That's why I'm not eating today. So I can have a greedy weekend and then I, I nip it in the bud on a Tuesday by fasting. So notice what effect a diet has on you mentally. So I know that sugar, for instance, makes me anxious. So if I cheat, I feel anxious and fretty for about two days. And Mm -hmm. lots of patients have noticed that. So um, I'm not, there is the diet sheet that you can all look at, but then I'd say that's just a basis for a fascinating journey into the diet that suits each of each of you the best and what you're looking for is a diet you enjoy 
feelings of energy, feeling that you can concentrate um, or, or whatever else your goals are. Uh, some people will notice their skin condition will improve amazingly mm-hmm. or their ability to concentrate all sorts of things. So that's why I'm not prescriptive, Ben, because the more prescriptive I am, the m- I think the more patients will fail. If I can interest you in your diet and changing it and then seeing how what improves, that's a, a far more useful thing that I've done rather than give you a printout of my diet like I'm God and I know the best. I was wrong before, you know, for 25 years. I may still be a bit wrong now. And and I'd really rather people learned what suited them. I think that's brilliant. Thank you so much, David. I know we're coming up up on time. So I asked three quick questions to everyone that comes on the show, with the first being, what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why? Right. What's the most impactful health change that I have made? It had to be uh, giving up sugar completely. And it was a struggle for me because I was, I was addicted to sweet biscuits and milk chocolate. It was very difficult. And learning how difficult it was was, just, was interesting in its own right. Giving up sugar and then later starchy carbs has transformed my life utterly is why i'm still a gp today brilliant massively impactful then the second is how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we spoke about today i think if all of us could spend a lot more time thinking about the true causes of illness because if it's a bit like i'll illustrate it essential hypertension What's the cause of essential hypertension? I asked this in the doctor's common room in the practice and they said, don't be ridiculous, David. That's why we call it essential hypertension. We don't know what the cause of it is. And so I said, well, if you don't know the cause of hypertension, how are you so sure about the treatments you're using? And of course, we actually do know some of the causes of essential hypertension. In part, it's insulin causing renal sodium retention. And once you know that, you know that cutting carbohydrates are likely to help blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And so I would say to people, I have learned so much by being curious about the real causes of illness and reading about it and thinking about it and then experimenting. The real cause of chronic disease. And if we could find those, we're far more likely uh, to end up with a healthier society. Brilliant. I love that. Thank you again. And I've got one last question, but before I ask it, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up? Okay. So I am the best place I think would be Twitter. So I'm at low carb GP on Twitter. Though I also, there are quite a lot of YouTube presentations, some of which have gone out to vast numbers of people. So you can look me up on uh, YouTube longer things what have I got coming up I'm working I'm I'm working on a paper I'm always working on a paper so my next paper is going to be looking at the predictors how can we predict which people would do well on low carb and achieve remission and the second question what happens to those who don't achieve remission Mm. and 
science always begins with interesting questions and those are my interesting questions and hopefully in about a year uh, if people are patient i'll have produced the uh, the paper to answer those questions i'm working on the stats right now excellent watch this space for sure yes and the last question, David, is can you please provide the listeners with three quick tips to help improve their health and well-being from today? Right. I think the, the, the first one is sugar. Give it up. I often joke, sugar is certain death. Don't let it get you. My family laugh when I say that. It's, it's, I know it's not completely true, but uh, please, please give up sugar, unnecessary calories. We haven't talked about exercise. Exercise, uh, so I'm a runner. I love running. It makes me happy. It connects me with the outdoors. Um, so exercise, the only thing is don't think you'll lose weight because probably you won't. But exercise will help everything else in your life. I love taking exercise. It's really good. My third thing is please connect with nature. I run eight bird reserves. I'm passionate about the environment. Um, that's been, uh, I was interested in wildlife way before I was interested in uh, nutrition. And as part of that, I'm very interested in uh, regenerative farming. Because I think the way we produce food is so important and is linked with uh, caring for the planet and caring for ourselves. Wonderful. And with that, David, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I really do hope that we can do this again soon. Ben, I've enjoyed that. The time really flew. And I'm sorry for all the interruptions, but I think it's because we were we sparked each other off, which is, is good. Ben and anybody that's still listening, thank you so much. Bye bye now. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.